0: It's great to be with you in worshiping and singing, and now we turn our attention to the study of God's Word. We've been in this season of renewal, and a big part of that is the 40 days of prayer and fasting that we started two weeks ago. We're on day 14 this morning. Let me see by a show of hands how many of you have been receiving the text messages or the emails every day and been following along with that. Fantastic. Um, we actually uh, keep track of how many people signed up just because we're curious. How engaged is our body in this? Over 2,000 of you have been participating in this, and so that's an encouragement. I think it should be an encouragement to all of us. If you haven't yet, it's not too late. Information's on the screens here. Send the text message. Uh, We're, as I mentioned, day 14, so we're about a third of the way in it. This is an opportunity not just to pray together, but also to learn how to pray, if you think about it. It's been very intentional. The first week was all about adoration. Week two was all about adoration and confession. We're about to move into adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, and then the fourth week: adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That completes that ACTS um, acronym. ACTS. And then when we get to the supplication part, which is pouring out our hearts, asking God to do specific things, we're going to be praying some specific prayers for our church, and uh, many of the prayers that. I've already been praying, are rooted in the book of Acts, rooted in this study that we've been in. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, that's where we're going to pick up the narrative today as we walk through the book of Acts. Now, remember, the reason that we're studying this book, it's part of our season of renewal, is the church is God's plan A for the world, and there is no plan B. And the reason we can say that is because Jesus is God's plan A for the world and there is no plan B. And the church is the body of Christ on earth. And so we've been looking at the book of Acts because Acts tells us about the DNA of the church. And if we want to be the kind of church that matches what God would call us to be, we need to know what God has called the church to in its origin story, in its birth and early years, if you will. So that's why we've been studying this book. And let me briefly recap where we've been. Chapter one of the book of Acts is the commissioning of the church by Jesus. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you power from the Holy Spirit. And that power is for the purpose of being witnesses all over the earth, starting in Jerusalem and then expanding out all over the globe. The church continues that mission today. And we see in chapter 1, uh, it kind of wraps up with the church waiting and praying for that power to come on them. And then beginning of chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them, and some spectacular things begin to happen as they live out that purpose, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus. And then once those spectacular things happen, draws a crowd. People are like, how is this possible that all these, you know, they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before. That gives Peter his first audience to preach the first sermon of the Christian church, and it's a phenomenal message. And so most of chapter Chapter 2 is the Sermon of Peter. We didn't dig into it in detail. We touched on it. The bottom line is God uses Peter through the power of the Spirit to be a witness of Jesus, and 3,000 people are added to the church, and then they become witnesses of Jesus. And you start seeing this theme of multiplication happening right here in the beginning of of Acts in chapter 2. The very end of chapter 2 gives us a reflection of what it was like to be a part of the church in Jerusalem in the early days of the church. And it's a a beautiful description. Mike Vogt was here last week teaching on this. He did a really great job. If you missed that message, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Here's how I'd summarize it. The end of Acts chapter 2 gives us this picture of the church that was characterized by devotion to teaching, devotion to one another through fellowship and community, devotion to prayer, Devotion to generosity. Do you see some of the core values that we're trying to emphasize here in our body being lived out by the church? We don't pick these core values out of thin air. They come from the scripture. And Acts chapter 2 is a a beautiful uh, picture of that. And then then look what God does in response to these values being lived out. The very end of Acts chapter 2, God gave them favor with all the people and was adding to their number daily those that were beginning to follow Christ. And then we get into Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, and these two chapters go together. They tell a single story. And so I'm going to summarize chapter 3 in a minute, and then we're going to dive a little bit deeper in verse, uh, chapter 4, particularly verses 1 through 22. That's our text this morning. But I want to give you right up front the big lesson that we're going to learn from this narrative, this story in, in the third and fourth chapters of Acts. Here's the big idea. The big idea is the heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. The heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. Now, what do I actually mean by that? I mean that you can't separate the proclamation of the message of Jesus, the good news, the witness part, the evangelism part, the outreach part. You can't separate that part from the church itself because this part, the proclamation, the missionary part of the church, which I know some of us aren't real comfortable with sharing our faith, that's the part, that's the heartbeat of the church. That's the part where if you pull it out or you kind of relegate it to just a department of your church, your church begins to die. So imagine any living organism, if you take the heart out, it's just a carcass. And I think this explains why there's so many carcasses of churches all around us. Like particularly in our area, we're, we're in the Bible Belt. It doesn't take long to drive down the street. Drive down Franklin Road between here and downtown Franklin. I don't know how, how many churches do you pass? You know, I don't know how many of those are vibrant, but I know statistics are showing that church attendance all around is dropping off. Well, does attendance matter that much? Well, here's what I'd say. Attendance is an indication of people that are gathering together to do the things the church was meant to do, to devote themselves to the word of God, and the teaching and prayer and generosity, right? This is how the church expresses itself. So why do we have all these dead churches around us and why is it sort of even alarming to think about where we are right now? Culturally, I believe it goes back to the heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. And if we're not out there sort of with that message proclaiming good news to people that desperately need good news, then we're dying. Now, I know I mentioned this for many of us, you know, we're we're a little bit uncomfortable with the missionary part, at least as it relates to us. It's kind of like, man, I'm glad some people are out there sharing their faith, but that's just not me. This passage is for us this morning. And, And by the way, I put myself with you in this. You know, it's a lot easier for me to just gather with other believers than to actually have conversations with unbelievers about my faith. It can be uncomfortable. And so what we do is we're just sort of tempted just to kind of relegate this to the corner in our individual lives and in our corporate life as a church. And I think what we're going to see in this text is we can't do that because the heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. And what actually happens when the church stops centering itself around its mission to proclaim the message of Jesus is that Christianity loses its distinctiveness You'll see that play out in the text a little bit. Christians lose their saltiness and the world loses the only real message of hope that it has. So it impacts the church, it impacts individual Christians, and it impacts the world at large because the heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. And we're going to develop this throughout our text. We're going to see four key insights about the message of the church through this text. So here's how it's going to work. I've broken our text this morning down into four parts. Read a part, talk about it, give a lesson, and we'll do that four separate times and then conclude with some application for us. So let me summarize chapter three as we get into the story. Peter and John were going up to the temple one day. You know, it sounds like the the beginning of a joke. Like two men were going up to the temple, right? What happened? Well, this particular occasion, they're going up to the temple and they see a man that they've probably passed by a hundred or more times. We don't have his name, but we know he was crippled. We know he was begging at the steps of the temple. Why would a crippled man beg at that particular place? Well, think about it. People that are going up to the temple, they're in a spiritual mindset. Maybe their spiritual mindset will, will kind of move something in, me to take, in them to take pity on me. He's thinking, and give me some money, give me some alms. So they ask Peter and John on their way up to the temple to pray. Hey, they ask him for some money. And the response of Peter and John is, is so incredible. You know, it's like, We don't have any money, but what we do have, we give. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And I'm sure that man at first thought they were mocking him or a joke, but then all of a sudden he just felt his, his muscles that had been atrophied snap back into place and strong again. And the scripture says he leaps up. And he begins running all over the temple and proclaiming the good news and and worshiping. And so this very naturally attracts a crowd because everybody recognizes him. He's more than 40 years. He's been crippled since birth. He's probably been right at that spot for years. He was known in that community. And and, and so a crowd comes, and Peter has the opportunity to preach his second sermon, which is very similar to the first. And so chapter 3 is mostly the second sermon of Peter. And so we get into chapter 4, and now we're going to read about the response to the message that has just been preached. And we're going to learn in chapter 4, four lessons or four key insights about the message of the church, about the proclamation of the good news. So let's pick up our text. Acts chapter 4, beginning verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, they being Peter and John, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, this is a remarkable response, right? Right? So already we're seeing this multiplication that started back in chapter 2. Now it's exploding even more. I mean, God is just doing something. He's on the move through his spirit here. And it is impossible now for the religious authorities to ignore what's going on. And so you start to see them take action. This text is significant because this is the first time that formal opposition to the church is introduced into the story. And it didn't take long, did it? It didn't take long at all. Now, Here's the first key insight that we get from these few verses that we just read. Uh, Here it is. The message of the church is good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. Now, where am I getting this from? What's the central idea of the message that Peter just preached? It actually tells us in verse 2. So interact with me on this. Look, look look back at verse 2. You know, we're not going to reread it, but what's the central idea of the sermon that Peter just preached? Someone just shouted out. Resurrection. Resurrection of the dead in Jesus. Now, there's the resurrection of Jesus, and there's resurrection in Jesus. What's the difference? Resurrection of Jesus is the event that happened. Resurrection in Jesus is what's possible for anyone because of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. The news that is proclaimed throughout the church's history, and particularly we see this in, in the book of Acts, is always a message of news, not advice. It's a message of good news. That's what gospel means, right? Something happened in real space, in real time, that has positive implications for you. The resurrection of Jesus, which really happened, and we were witnesses of it, has positive implications for you. Now all of you can have a resurrection of your own, but new life now and the promise of a literal bodily resurrection to come. That's the message of the gospel. It's news, not advice. Now, Why does this distinction matter? Think about it this way: every other religion, every other faith system, even every other worldview, when you boil it down, is a philosophy of life. How to make life work? You know how how to please God, how to be a good person, how to find inner peace. how to make sense of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Christianity addresses all of those things, but at its core, it's not a philosophy. At its core, it's a proclamation of news. It's a proclamation of something that happened. Now, skip down to verse 20. You know, we're we're going to get to verse 20. It happens to be my favorite verse in this passage. But even now, before we get there, just flip over the page or whatever and look down at verse 20. This is what Peter and John are going to say in a few minutes here. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Notice they don't say we cannot stop speaking about these wonderful principles for living. They don't say, we cannot stop speaking about these great spiritual disciplines and practices that we've been doing that have kind of given us this sense of of vitality and inner peace. No, 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 no. We cannot stop speaking about what? What we've seen and what we've heard. The news, you see. We cannot stop speaking about the news and what it means for us and what it means for you. Now, this is a massive distinction and it's massively important. And the reason I'm getting passionate about this is far too many churches have gotten this confused. Far too many churches have made the message about good advice for living and, and being a good person and helping people and, you know, have, working on your marriage and, and parenting and, and, you know, all these things which, which are important. And we're, we're going to talk about those things. But they've lost sight of, at its core, Christianity is a proclamation of something that happened in real time, in real space, which has wonderful implications for us now. It's a proclamation of news. So let me give you this illustration. I'm going to take a couple minutes on this first point because it's worth it. Uh, This illustration comes from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher and a writer and just just a a, a wonderful sort of proponent of the faith. And I, I, I say this, and it sounds like exaggeration this might be the best illustration of the gospel that I've ever heard. All right, so it's, it's worth hearing. Imagine that you lived in an ancient time And your country was being attacked by a neighboring country. And of course, you know, in ancient times, they didn't have air force and cruise missiles they could just send over. You know, you had to send an army, right? So what they would do in the city is they'd gather all the able-bodied men, like everybody. They would leave the city, basically only the elderly and women and children, you know, would be back at the city because they're gonna send their army out away from the city to fight the battle out here, right? Before the enemy gets to the city. That's how this would work. So they would meet the opposing army on the battlefield and the people back in the city would wait anxiously to hear what happens at the battle. If it was good news, a herald would be sent, you know, and would announce good news, right? They'd say, good news, the battle has been won. You can live in the freedom of the victory. The sacrifice that was made for you align your lives to this news, you see. But if it was not good news, they wouldn't announce gospel. They wouldn't announce good news. In fact, they wouldn't even send a herald necessarily. If they still had a, a, a group alive, they would send whatever remnant of their army back. They'd send their generals. They'd send their military advisors. And the military advisors would, would group all the population and they'd say, we're gonna have to make a last stand right here. So get the boiling oil you know, ready and, you know, and put the archers in this spot and you know, you know, buttress up the, the, the gates and all these kinds of things because the enemy is coming and it's on our way. Now, Here's the insight of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones that I think is incredibly helpful. He said, Every other religion sends military advisors saying, If you want to live, here's what you have to do. You're going to have to work your tail off in order to be saved. That's every other religion. Christianity sends heralds, it sends proclaimers of good news, gospelers. And they have this message the battle has been won for you. You've been saved without any effort on your part, so simply believe it. Simply receive the news and start living your lives according to the freedom that was bought by the blood of those who sacrificed for you. You see, this is the gospel. This is the contrast. The message of the church is good news. It's never good advice, you see. And if you shift The core purpose of the church away from the proclamation of the news. It becomes just another religion. I think this is where we are in large part, at least in North America with the state of the church today. You want to know why Christian churches are dying? They've lost sight that the core of the church is the proclamation of the news Right? Instead, they've made it about all kinds of other things, you know, some of them very good things. And some of those very good things, things that we want to be about too, but we must keep at the center the proclamation of the news because the heartbeat of the church is the message of the church. The nature of that message is good news to be proclaimed, not good advice to be followed. That's lesson number one. Let's keep going in with the story. We're going to see a lot more. Verse five. On the next day, The rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. You should recognize some of those names. These are the same men that uh, that put Jesus to death, right? When they had placed them in the center, them being, again, Peter and John, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, don't miss this next phrase. Filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit doing its job to give power to be witnesses. Said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, you know, I, I love that. Like, if you're putting us on trial for healing, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Pause there for a minute. Do you see them living out their commissioning? I'll give you power, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses. You know, they didn't take credit for the miracle. It's like this came through Jesus, it's through his name. Now, look at verse 11. They're going to quote Old Testament scripture to these men who would have known this scripture He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. You see, God is up to something here and you're a part of it, religious leaders, but not the part of it that you think you are. So pay attention. And then this is the kicker, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Key insight number two. You're going to see this in this text that we just read. The message of the church is exclusively about Jesus, but inclusively for everyone. It's exclusively about Jesus, but inclusively for everyone. Now, verse 12 is where our culture has a field day, right? What do you mean there's no other name by which men can be saved? You know how exclusive that is? You know how discriminatory that is? Do you know how old school that sounds? Do you know how intolerant that is? Christians, there's no other name by which you must be saved. Give me a break. We have got to deal with this one. We have got to deal with that objection. We've got to know how to respond to this. And I want you to see something very clearly in this text. What's actually going on in this text and the whole book of Acts is the exact opposite of what's being accused of the church today. Let me explain. The history of the early church is going to show us and already is in this passage that Christianity is incredibly inclusive. In fact, it is the most inclusive faith or worldview that there ever has been still to this day. Don't miss what Peter is saying. He's looking at the ones that plotted to kill the king. And he's saying, even though you crucified him, you can still be saved. It's remarkable. It's amazing. There's no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, even you. And you're gonna see this played out. There's no one that's out of reach of the good news to be brought in of all people, these are the ones that should have been left out. It's for everyone except those of you that plotted to kill Jesus. In fact, what's interesting is in every one of Peter's messages, this is the third time now, You know, sermon number one, sermon number two, and then now this little interchange here when they're on trial, every single time he's accusing his audience of putting Jesus to death. Did they all do it? Not literally, right? but, but he's saying all of us are guilty of dethroning our king that came to us because we don't like having a king over us. And so this is still the message today. It's, it's kind of bad news before it's good news. It's like you're guilty of dethroning the king that belongs to be on the throne. In fact, there's a sense that you put him to death, but God has raised him back up and now there's an offer of pardon on the table for all, even you who are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. Now, you, you got to understand how inclusive that message is. And then we see this theme all throughout the book of Acts. It's a massive theme that the gospel breaks through all barriers. Right? It's not just for the Jews. It's now for the nations, for the Gentiles. There's no more divisions between anyone anymore. Right, no, no, no division between Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious, men and women, rich and poor, slaves and masters, people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, different belief systems, languages. The message of salvation is for everyone. And literally, like, we need to be equipped to think this way. This is a historic fact. By the end of the book of Acts, which is only the first forty years of Christian history, the church is the most diverse. An inclusive faith system the world had ever seen. It still is to this day, men and women. Think about all the religions out there. Think about all the beliefs out there, the faith systems. E- even sort of the, the, the atheist group, they're, they're not diverse. They're not inclusive. Global Christianity is. So it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, whatever ethnicity you are, whatever background you are, whatever part of the world you grow up in, you grew up in, the message is for you. The message is for you. So you have to think this way. The message is exclusive in the sense that it's always about Jesus. But do you know what? Jesus is the only founder of a religion, if you want to think of him that way, that ever proclaimed to be a savior. Muhammad never claimed to be the savior. All right? nor, nor did any other person that started Joseph Smith, whatever. They didn't claim to be a savior. They claimed to be prophets and other things like this. Jesus is the only one that said, I'm the savior. If you want to be saved, you come through me. But it's open to all, you see. It's exclusive in the sense that it's always about the one savior that there is, Jesus. But it's incredibly inclusive. Like, Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the message of Jesus. His message was never salvation as for those on the inside who are clean, His message is always salvation is for everyone who understands that they're not clean and is willing to come to me, Jesus would say, the only one that has a clean set of clothes for you. And it's a gift. And take it, no matter where you're coming from. You you see the huge inclusivity of this. This is actually going to get the church in trouble because they're going to be so inclusive, right? You mean it's for Gentiles too? You see All right, I I went long on that one, okay? But we've got to be thinking about this uh, in in our day, in our age, and in our culture. All right, so that's kind of lesson number two. The message of the church is exclusively about Christ, but inclusively for everyone. Now let's get to verse 13, and we'll read 13 through 17. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. I love this next phrase and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Listen to the tragedy of verse 17. But so that it will not spread any longer any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. Now, do, you, do, you, do you see the spiritual resistance that's coming against this? It's like the gospel is exploding and then there's panic, panic. And these men are like, no, no, we got to keep this down. We got to suppress it. Key insight number three we learned from the text I just read. The message of the church properly proclaimed always creates a dilemma for the hearer. It always creates a dilemma for the hearer. Do you see the dilemma of the religious leaders? Right, it's very clear. There's, there's something that happened that they can't explain. Right, This man w- was a cripple and now he's whole again and we can't explain it. More importantly, there's something about the messengers that they can't explain. Verse 13. All right, well, we, we, we know these men. They're uneducated, untrained. They shouldn't be able to speak the way they're speaking, to do the things that they're doing, to to be such powerful leaders. They made note that they'd been with Jesus. So here's the principle for us. Proclaiming the message of Jesus creates tension in the hearts of the hearers because let's face it, news about resurrection is initially really hard to believe. It just is. Right? It's just not our life experience. I've never known anyone that's resurrected, literally, you know, in, my, in my, my day. So it's initially hard to believe, but they can't explain away life change. Can't explain away life change. Men and women, this is how the gospel has always gone out. The message is proclaimed, and the reason that, that, that it's not just dismissed immediately is because there's something that cannot be explained, and it's always the life change. In this case, a very literal healing, but not just that. It's these men that are different than they used to be, Peter and John and the other disciples. You see, there's life change that the world cannot explain away. We are called to be the kind of church, Fellowship Bible, where anyone looking at us or hearing from us would not be able to explain away our lives. I want us to be known for that. I long for us to be known for that. We are in some degrees. You know, we're talking about renewal right now. I've sat with many of you that were here at the very beginning. I said, you know, tell me about the church during those first five or seven years when it was just so explosive. And you know what I heard? People people say two things, number one and two. They always say, well, the, the teaching of God's word, and they say the life change. I just knew people whose life was getting changed through this church, and I wanted in. We're called to be known for that. And and so I'm asking us as a body, what is there about us individually and corporately that would cause other people to recognize that we've been with Jesus? Verse 13. Is is that compelling? It's compelling to me. Uh, One one of the prayers that I've been praying for us in these 40 days um, is that by the power of the Spirit, we individually and collectively would be so transformed that people would say, I can't quite explain that man or woman. It's like the message about the resurrection of Jesus is crazy, but I can't quite explain how gracious they are, how much they love me, even when I mock their faith, how, how patient they've been, how persistent they've been and just caring for me right? Not like showing up like the big religious bullies, like, have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus? (laughs) No. Their lives are so different, I'm going to note that they've been with Jesus, you see. That's what's happening here, even in the hearts of these enemies of the faith. I got to say this part. Do you know what the surveys are saying in our culture about people that don't believe in Jesus, what they think about us Christians? The surveys are showing us, not our surveys, I'm talking about nationwide, globally. The surveys are showing us that unbelievers like Jesus, they just don't like Christians. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. And I think it's easy for us as a church to say, well, they're thinking of other Christians. They're thinking of people that go to other churches. They're thinking of those hypocrites out there. thinking of people out there it's easy for us also to say well you know they don't like us because we're standing for truth we must stand for truth but we must stand for truth in a way that looks and sounds like Jesus right this is a prayer for us I, I think there's something here that we need to pray about and even we need to repent of and then ask the spirit to be transforming us all right I'm only halfway done. Let me speed up. Okay, let me speed up. 18 through 22. Oh no, no, I'm 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 three fourths of the way done. This is good. (laughs) Okay. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. My favorite verse, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let's finish out the text. Verse 21. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Isn't this just ridiculous, right? 22. For the man was more than 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. A clear miracle, and they're like, eh, I don't know, but I guess the people will rise up if we. Kill these witnesses of Jesus. So I guess we have to let them go. But they better not say anything else about Jesus. Here's key insight number four. Comes really from verse twenty. The message of the church is uncontainable in the hearts of the messengers. Like you you can't hold it back. You can't hold it down. Now you know some of you are like, yeah, I can. I've been doing that all my Christian life. I never shared my faith with anybody. You know, (laughs) I I get it. Right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But but listen. Like, this is what we see. In fact, I want you to to look really closely here at verse 20. If you you translate it literally from the Greek, which, you know, the New American Standard does, but but I think it misses something here. The, The actual Greek says, we lack the power to stop speaking. Like, we can't. It's not just that we're making a choice to value one thing over another thing. It's, it is impossible for us to stop speaking because we don't have the power to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It reminds me of that old Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar, you know, and he, he tells all these lies and then he comes under some spell or something like this and, and he can no longer speak lies anymore. It's like he's trying to, like, what comes out of his mouth is truth. You know, that's what's happening to these men. I think they literally don't have control over this. That's what the Greek would indicate to us. Remember, Peter is the same man who lied three times that he even knew Jesus. It's like he couldn't even admit back then that he knew Jesus. Now he can't even stop speaking about what he has seen and heard. I think this verse illustrates something about anyone who has come to faith in Christ genuinely. And here it is, embracing the message of Christ makes it impossible not to proclaim it. Why is because you actually have the spirit in you who testifies to the truth. And so the only way that you cannot speak is if you're holding it in. Okay, so let me give you this illustration. We'll start to close out, all right? I have in this laundry hamper here two balloons, okay? Now, these are identical balloons, right? They're They're both blue they're the same size they've got you know these white strings on them there's a big difference between those balloons though right right one one of them is is filled with carbon dioxide okay which is heavier than the air around me and the other is filled with helium lighter and it's gonna go upward now Here's what I think is actually happening. Peter used to be this over here, right? He used to be this balloon, you know, he denies Christ. It's just like, why does he deny? He's just afraid. And honestly, he's not filled yet with the substance that would pull him upward to proclaim truth. And so he's down here, but something happens to Peter where he's transformed. Now think about this balloon for a minute. Like this balloon does not have the power not to float, you see. Like it, it can't, the, the plastic or rubber or you know, whatever the substance is, it does not have the power to overcome the upward force of the helium. And so I want you to think about this in relationship to us and, and our witness. It's like if the spirit is in you because you're a believer of Jesus, then it's like, I, I, I can't help speaking. I, I, I don't have the power to contain that. This is actually what's happening with Peter. You see, the only reason this balloon's not going all the way to the ceiling is because it's tethered. So let's talk about that. Because some of you are like, man, from a witness standpoint, I'm actually this, than this. So maybe I don't have the spirit in me. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. So I've thought about this a lot. And I, I thought, okay, what about those of us that, that, that are not sharing our faith? Like we don't identify with Acts 4 verse 20. I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and heard. In fact, you know, some of us, it's the opposite. It's like, I cannot help but, but not speak. Or, you know, I, I got myself confused. But you know where I'm trying to get to on this. Now, this balloon is floating because it cannot help it. What about those of us that are not? What about those of us that are not sharing our faith? Well, as I've thought about this, I think there's only two possibilities. Number one, some of you are not actually converted. Okay, and I'm going to go here just very gently and respectfully, and I've prayed a lot about saying this because I don't want anyone to doubt their salvation that is really saved. Scripture teaches that once you put your faith in Jesus, you're secure. You cannot lose your salvation. So I'm not trying to introduce doubt into those of you that are saved. But I just know from talking to a lot of you and at the Franklin campus and a couple other churches that I've pastored that are in similar environments in the Bible Belt, there's an awful lot of people that think they're Christians that aren't. And I'll ask him, you know, tell me the story of your faith. And what I usually get is well, like, well, I've always been a Christian. Now, I think I know what we mean when we say that. You know, we were grown in a church and we never remember a time where we didn't believe in Jesus, etc. But you were not always a Christian. Like, you were born an enemy of God. That's what scripture teaches. And at some point in your life, you understood the news and you said, that news is for me. <laughs> And then like the illustration of the, the, the people in the city, you're like, the battle has been won. I'm now gonna believe it and arrange my life according to the freedom that's been bought for me. You see, if you've never actually personalized the gospel, it's news, not advice, then you're actually not converted. You might be doing a lot of Christian things. You may look like a Christian. You may be coming to church, even a Bible-teaching church like this one. You know, your life might look really, really, really good, just like that other balloon, but the reality is you know it. You don't have any life. You, you don't have the, the new breath, the, the pneuma, the spirit that's in this balloon. Okay, I think that's some of you in the room. And, and so here's what I'd in, in, encourage you is you need to receive the good news. You need to, to make it personal. You need to own it. You need to say, it's time for me to own my faith. And I'd love to talk to you about this. You know, any of our pastors would Um, and, And I would say use this time of 40 days of prayer just to kind of dwell on this a little bit. Have I actually been transformed at any point in my life by the gospel of Jesus? Okay, I gotta move forward. The second possibility, many of you are believers, you are converted, but something is tethering you, right? Something's holding you back. You know, you've got this tether that's keeping you from soaring up. What are some of our tethers? Listen to this list. See which one or ones you identify with, and then we're gonna pray about them. Because i got to wrap us up. I think, I think there's at least five things that could be tethers. Number one's fear. I, I bet you if I ask for a show of hands, I won't. 80, 90% of us have some fear around sharing our faith. We don't want to be that weird, crazy, religious kook. Or, or we don't know what it will mean for our relationships or for our work or, you know, whatever. Number one is fear. Number two is sin. You know, the scripture tells us that we can actually quench the spirit that is in us. And some of us are just, man, you're just wrestling with some sin. It's just kind of keeping the the movement of the Spirit upward in your life. It's repressing it. Number two, doubt, right? Listen, don't believe the lie that once you put your faith in Christ, all your doubts suddenly disappear. Remember we studied this in Mark? I believe help my unbelief. That's okay to be there. There, There's some things about Christianity that we're going to continue to struggle with, and you may doubt some things from time to time, and that's okay. As long as it's not tethering you, From being a witness, doubt can do that. How about boredom? (laughs) Let me speak to some of the men in the room. I'm going to call on you because I think this is just common with men. So many men I talk to, man, they they get energized by sports or their work or their their activities, not by their church, not by their spiritual lives, not, not by the mission that they're really called to, the battle that they're actually called to fight. They're bored with it. You know, maybe there's something about the church that's causing that. I don't know. We're, we're going to be looking at that. But, but I think there's boredom. And then the last thing, I know we'll all identify with this one to some degree, is distraction, right? Like we're, we all have so much going on in our lives. We're so busy. It's so easy to get distracted. Now, what do we do about all these? We pray. We pray. And I think we need to confess, and we need to specifically name which of those five is tethering you From sharing your faith, because that's what the spirit in you wants to do. Is it fear? Is it sin? Is it doubt? Is it boredom? Is it distraction? Is it some combination? And here's what I think is going to happen when God begins to take away these things through our prayer. Check this out. Yeah. I think that's where we're going. I think that's why he's led us into 40 days of prayer and fasting. I think as we pray about these things specifically, he wants to untether some of you and us collectively as a body to be a witness of Jesus. Now, let me close us in prayer about this. Our Father, the message that we proclaim is too important not to speak, it's too valuable not to share. It's too life-giving to hold back. And so the spirit that actually is in us, we believe that according to your word, the spirit is a, a spirit who testifies to the truth. May we be men and women and young men, young women, who testify that would be so governed by the spirit that is in us that we would be unleashed as we share and as we love people, that your name would be proclaimed. And I pray, Father, for the men and women in this room that that are just being held back, they're being tethered by their fear or by sin or by doubt or by distraction. And I pray, Father, that you would allow them to be freed up. And church, I'm gonna invite you this week, to begin praying specifically about which one or ones of those you need to confess and ask God just to cut some tethers. And so, Father, we bring all this to you. You're the only one we can bring it to, and we trust you, even though it's a little scary. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.